You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Are you ready for some great motivational coaching? Well, you're going to get it here today on The Real Well Show. I'm Kathy Fedke. Thanks for joining me. Our guest today is Coach Chad Carson, who began investing in real estate at age 23, soon after ending his career as a college football linebacker at Clemson University. He became financially independent in his late 30s. Now at 43 years old, Chad works less than two hours per week on his real estate. And he's on a mission to help others get out of the financial grind like he did so they can do more of what matters. So, Chad, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you, Kathy. Great to be here. I wanted to talk about your book that you just came out with, The Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor, published by Bigger Pockets. And tell me what you mean by that. This is, it seems like we live in a world where people want to be big and mighty. Yeah. Part of this writing this book was a little frustration. I feel like in the business world, the real estate world, there's this definition of success, which is you just have to keep climbing the ladder. And I wanted to push back on that, both my personal experience of trying to go big and then realizing that if I really wanted to have freedom and flexibility and time with my family and time to really do what matters in my life, that having a big, huge business actually is the opposite of what I wanted to do because it because it uses all my time. And so I've been really over the years trying to build a real estate business that grows enough that I have enough money, have enough you know resources to do what we want to do, but then is simple enough and small enough to also free up time and have flexibility. And these days I, I work about two hours per week or less on the real estate business, but it provides a full-time income. So I, I feel like that's a, a good place to be for me. Wow. You just uh, said so many things and I'm not sure which one I want to go after, but um, let, let's talk about where when you did go too big. When did you learn this lesson? Yeah, probably at the worst possible time, 2007, right before the Great Recession. It was when I, uh, my, I have a business partner, and the two of us started in 2003. I was 23 years old, and we were just gung ho, like like a lot of new investors. We went to seminars, we read books, and the definition of success for us was buy more properties. And so we got pretty good at that. And in 2007, we bought 33 properties, and some of those are multifamily, some of those are flips. But we we were full time in the business. And by the end of that year, though, I credit my business partner more than me. He he was basically saying, wait a minute, like, why are we doing all this? Like, we need to put the brakes on a little bit. The recession was sort of showing its ugly head a little at that point. And we we did this little exercise where I don't remember where we read it, but it was basically write down a list of things that you would do if you had unlimited money, if you had unlimited time. And the things on my list were did not require a lot of money. They were like, travel with my family. I just got married that year. Uh, Play pickup basketball in the middle of the day, go on hikes in the woods because I live in a beautiful part of the country in South Carolina near the mountains. So like some things needed money, but what I really was lacking was a lot of time. And so that sort of, it wasn't an easy shift because we were in the middle of the recession and we had to sort of survive that first. But over, over time, we started trying to shift our business and ask ourselves the question, how can we simplify this? How can we make it more lean so that it's easier to run? Oh my gosh, you're speaking my language. It is so easy to want to go big and it's so, I don't know, um, tempting to, to want to be a mogul, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but the important thing is to do what you just said and determine what is it you really, really want. And, and really what, what would you want from being a big mogul? Versus like what you said, I agree with you. The things that I love to do are often free, like surfing or hiking or mountain biking or being with the family, playing games. So I, oh, I love that. Being clear on your 
on your why, on your values, what brings you the most joy is the key. Okay. Well, how do you, a lot of people, um, then don't know how to scale with real estate to get to a point where they can be job optional. So how did you do that? What, what has been your strategy? Yeah. So the, the scaling of a small and mighty empire looks a lot like other empires. I mean, you, you have to use leverage. I think, I think leverage is a smart thing to do, especially when you're early in your career. I mean, we all, unless you had a trust fund, most, most of us don't, you have to start with a little bit of money and leverage and real estate's amazing. So I think when you start and when you start growing, Fine, use leverage, grow, but you know, try to go from one property to two, two properties to four, four properties to ten, maybe if that's your number. But I think the fork in the road that I try to push back on is when you start getting to this number, like eight properties, ten properties, twenty properties. You have to think about what, how many you really need, and that's some fun math we can go into if you want. But at that point, I find people use the same tools they use to grow all the forever. And I call it the perpetual debt religion where you're always borrowing money, always using leverage and any, anything less than 80% leverage is, is a sin in the real estate world. Whereas I'm, I, I push back and say, no, actually at some point when you have enough, it's Warren Buffett uses this quote where he says, it's kind of, it's, it's crazy to risk everything you have, everything you've built to get something you don't even need. Yes. And so that's that's when you, you kind of transition from this wealth builder stage into more of a harvester. Some people call it an ender, where you actually start, in my book, you start paying off some debt or you start prioritizing lower risk, uh, lower hassle, higher free time. And for me, that looked like not buying as many properties. We would sell some, we'd buy some more to replace them. Sometimes we just made profits and sold our property and use that to pay off debt on other properties. And so it was more like working on the portfolio on the capital allocation and not just more, 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 more properties to try to solve all your problems. Oh, I cannot agree with you more. I'm absolutely guilty of doing just that where uh, when, when I started syndicating in 2010, we started doing massive projects and, and some have been really hard that we're still working on 10, 12 years later um, that won't even bring a return because I'm just trying to get the investor's money back and that's my, my focus. So, you know, these are big, big deals that have been difficult. So before going, how do you know that what, what kind of deal is going to be simple or difficult? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I, I have to touch the fire to get burned. I think that's just my mentality as an entrepreneur. So I've done some deals that took me a while to get out of. But I, I have a mentor named John Schaub who wrote the book Building Wealth One House. Love Empire. John. Oh, yeah. my gosh. I've had him on the show a few times. John's amazing. And I think, you know, I, I don't just buy single family houses, but he always resonates with single family houses. And I think for me, a small residential multifamily. And I like those. I, I compare it you both strategically to like a chessboard. Like when you have a big apartment complex, which I, I like, I have some bigger apartments too, but if you have a big apartment complex, this is almost like a big boat. And if you're trying to steer this big ship, that's like an oil tanker, it's really difficult to steer that ship. Whereas if you have a bunch of little boats, you, if, if you want to change, if the market changes like it is right now and you need to sell a couple properties and replace them with other properties, you're so flexible and adaptable. And so I think that's kind of funny in the real estate where we kind of down on these little properties, these single families, these duplexes, as if they're, you know, that's kind of the baby's game. You know, once, you, once you're not a baby, you can move up to the, to the big person's game and buy real big properties. And I say, look at John Schaub, 50 years in the business, one of the most relaxed, happy people I know, has plenty of money. And I know a ton of people like John who nobody even knows. And that's why I wrote the book. It's like the small, mighty investor, they're not big. They're not, they're not on a shark tank. They're not on like the, the shows where everybody's saying, look at this person. They're just too busy, like enjoying their life, traveling, 
being with their kids. And that's, that's the success that is really more important to me. Absolutely. I, and you're right about John. You know, he is the most relaxed, happy guy. Um, and he did help me overcome my um, belief that I was playing a small game because he's all he's one house at a time guy, one house a year uh, to build that portfolio. And and then again, like you like you said, how much do you really need? Uh, what you need is time because that we know for sure is limited. Yeah. All right. So you do a lot of coaching with investors. What would you say is the number one ingredient that investors need to have? I think these days, 2023, 2024 is flexibility. And I, I would combine that with persistence. Because uh, I, I think about, I mean, you've been in the business a long time too, Kathy. It's like, how many times has the strategy, this like the strategy of the day, like how many times has that changed? You know, whether it's a, you know, subject to and assuming loans back in the 80s and 90s to, you know, buying long-term fixed debt and doing bird deals in, in our era. And now- like it's changing again. And so there, there's just this, I think the success ingredient is like you have simultaneously, you've got to be willing to pivot every two to five years, maybe on your financing strategy on how, on how you're going to buy properties, how you're going to evaluate them. But then, you know, going back to John Schaub, what, what are the fundamentals that never change in real estate? Like what are the things that you, you always have to evaluate? And when you came on my, my podcast, I really enjoyed your perspective on this. It's like, there's some, there's some trends here that we can pay attention to, like the locations of the properties, the quality of the, the properties, the economic demographic trends of, of properties. Like those, those are always in, you know, you can, if you can evaluate that now, you can evaluate it five years from now, 10 years from now, it's more of a long-term investment perspective. So when you combine those two things, that persistence and long-term vision with the willingness to be an entrepreneur and pivot and change, I think that that combination is really important. Oh, flexibility. That is such a, such a very important point. Um, you could learn a great strategy only to find out that it's not going to work in the next season. Um, you know, I, I know some people that are, you know, were note investors or foreclosure. They, they put a lot of money in their foreclosure websites only to find out we've had such a low amount of foreclosures over the last decade. So you, you do have to always be adaptable. And so what would you say is the time that we're moving into? What are the skill sets that people need oh, besides what you just said, besides the foundations? I think creative financing is actually, it's, I got kind of lucky when I first started, I didn't have a job. I got out of college and I, I just jumped into real estate full time. And I was surprised to find out that my ba the bankers didn't really care about my A average in college or the fact that I played football. They're like, no, we actually want you to have some money, Chad. We're not going to loan you money. And so I had to start using private money, had to learn how to use other people's self-directed retirement accounts. I had to learn how to use seller financing, lease options, subject to a little bit as well. And so I think those tools, which are kind of a niche tool at times, are coming back because when you look at the, just the economics of a real estate property, if a property produces unleveraged a 6% return, like a 6% cap rate, and interest rates are 8%, all of a sudden, the, the property with traditional financing is upside down from the, from the start. And so how, how can you solve that? Well, you could solve it. If, if I had 100% cash, I could pay cash for that property and make a 6% return. Not everybody has cash, but you might have a partner who has cash. You might have a private lender who has cash. And so I think thinking like that, like separating the property from the financing and saying, okay, the property is still a good property. I'm buying it at an even better price in 2023 than I was in 2022. That's part one. And then part two, what kind of financing can I adapt to, whether that's private money, getting seller financing, using other, other forms of financing to still make a deal work so that you can hold it and still you know, benefit from it over the long run? 
It's exactly why we started our single family rental fund. I knew that, you know, lots and lots of people were going to be priced out of the market and this was, there was going to be great demand for rentals, but difficulty in financing those. So we started a fund, people put $50,000 in each and we buy all these properties, all cash with no competition. So again, it's, it's a, pivoting, pivoting, looking at where the need is and what the, what the distress is and find a way to, to serve that and, and solve it. Right. You were ahead, you were ahead of the curve there. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it just made sense. It's like, oh my gosh, if rates are going up, that's going to price, I think it's what 25 million people out of the market, but they still want a place to live. Yeah. Um, so if you, it was hard the the years during COVID or before that to, to get a good deal because there was so much competition. So for me to be on a playing field where that competition is gone, is, I, I was thrilled. Still am. We're still getting fabulous deals. So over the years, I've learned that it's really important to have a buy box so you can stay focused and keep things simple. Otherwise, you're buying all kinds of things that take a lot more management because they're different. That's why Southwest has all the same planes, right? The same kind of plane. So how does somebody come up with their buy box? Yes, yeah, so I, I compare the buy box to like when you, when you buy a new car, like I just bought a Toyota RAV4, for example, and I didn't even know there was a bunch of Toyota RAV4s on the road until my brain knows about this. And all of a sudden, oh, wow, look, this is the same car everywhere. Like, and this is part of your brain called the reticular activating system that scientists know about. And we can use that in real estate investing by having, having a buy box where we say we're going to exclude like most of the market because there's thousands and thousands of houses. But like, let's define ahead of time what it means to have a good deal for us. That's, a, that's what a buy box is. And, and, and in, my, in my buy box, I like to put two sort of two different types of things in there. The first part is more like a qualitative description of the property that I want to buy. This is the stuff that you and I have talked about uh, on my podcast, the, the demographic trend. Like what, what locations of the country do I think really have long-term beneficial trends happening right now? So like from a regional level, an upper, a higher level. But then even on the micro level in my, my town, I like to look at the little zip codes and the census tracts and say, which, which one of those have just this intangible emotional demand in my market? Market. And that's what's so cool about real estate. You don't have to be like a, an expert on biochemistry, like buying a biochemistry stock. You just have to be a shopper in real estate and say, where are the places people want to live? And I, I put that in my buy box and say, these are the school districts. These are the, the places I want to live close to this park, close to this uh, greenway. I'm a big walking and biking kind of fan. I think, I think that's the trend that a lot of people, younger people especially, want to live close to walkable locations. So that, that would be like your thesis on one part of your buy box. The other part would be the numbers, like what price range of properties have the best rent to price ratio, what price range maybe has the least supply. And so you have to do, this is where your realtor, your local people on the ground can help you out a little bit, but it really does come down to the numbers. You could have the best location in the country. I mean, there's places in Manhattan and parts of California, which are amazing places and high quality and they're not going anywhere, but it's pretty hard for us, the small and mighty real estate investor to make that make sense because it's just out of our price range or the economics don't make sense. So I think it's a combination of just cold, hard, math and this qualitative evaluation of the location that says this is a this is a box and then it, you exclude it might be also property types too i didn't mention that one so you might say single family house three bedroom two bath and the 29630 zip code that's in the 150 to 250,000 dollar price range that might like start your search. And of course, from there, you're going to have some evaluation formulas and criteria to understand what a good deal is. But that buy box will exclude a lot so that you can then focus on the ones that are the best chances of being a good investment. 
You mentioned earlier that um, there's not a lot of trust fund kids, but I think that's going to change because baby boomers hold 50% of the wealth and they represent 27% of the population. Um, As they move on, uh, that money is going to be passed on and inherited. Um, I talked to my daughter about this because she has a friend who's going to be inheriting some money and they were looking at possible houses that this person would buy. And I said, this was to live in and they were exotic homes. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. Um, the most important thing I think starting out is understanding that if you don't spend your, like, like let's say you get a million bucks or 2 million bucks in inheritance. Um, you might want to go out and, and spend it, right? Of course, buy the car, buy the clothes. But the what wealthy people do instead is never touch that that um, equity. Instead, it's invested and they live off of that. So it's a completely different mindset. Like if you have $2 million with a 10% return, that's $200,000 a year in income that you could make uh, instead of just spending it, which is what most people do. They'll just spend the principal. So, um, I mean, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's exactly exactly the way I think about it as well. And that's actually how I when I when I help people do the math, whether you're inherited it or whether you're trying to do the math for your own retirement or your own financial freedom, I do a very simple evaluation like that to say if you had a million dollars in equity and you can make a six percent return, for example, even more conservative, that's a sixty thousand dollar per year, you know, cash return on your your equity. And if that's not enough, if you want one hundred twenty thousand bucks per year, then you need to have two million dollars in equity. And so that's it's that that simple math is really why when you work it backwards, a lot of the times you'll find that if you owned ten properties free and clear, and they each rented for a couple thousand bucks, like the net number might be one hundred twenty thousand bucks a year from ten houses if you if they were all worth two hundred thousand bucks, for example. And so I, I think that's so so important to do what you're saying there. Just run that math. But then understand the philosophy of not spending the principal. Like that's what's great about real estate. You, you can, My parents are in their uh, 70s now, and they. My mom was a dentist. My dad was in the uh, rental business, so he, that was kind of their partnership. They now they live off the rents, and they can't even spend all the rents. Like, <laughs> it's, I was like, Dad, spend the money. Like go on some more trips. So like it's it keeps going up. It's and so that's uh, that's one of the amazing things about real estate. It's a, it's an inflation hedged quality place that people ha- and people have been living there for years. I'm reading a, a Benjamin Franklin biography right now. And I was I was shocked to learn that he he had a printing business and he put all his money into Philadelphia real estate back in 1750 or whenever that was 40. And he retired at 42 years old off the business dividends and his real estate income. Wow. That's, it's not a new thing. People, people <laughs> have been living off this thing for a long time. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so remember that if you're if you're coming into any amount of money, do not spend it, invest it, and live off the money it produces. Uh, and and while that nest egg is still growing as a result. Okay, so how have you been able to live differently as a small and mighty real estate investor? Yeah, my wife and I love travel, and but you know, vacations are cool, and going to the beach is cool. We like that as well. But we really are into this long-term, slow travel. Uh, my wife's a Spanish teacher, and so my my corny pickup date when I first met my wife in yoga class was, "Oh, you're a Spanish teacher? I'd like to I like to learn Spanish." <laughs> hey, <laughs> it, it worked <laughs> somehow. It worked, and the first date we talked about, "Oh, we could travel to Costa Rica and Guatemala and 
So in 2009, before we had kids, it was my first, like after that 2007, survived the recession, finally took a breath after a couple of years, we survived it. And we just took a four month trip with our backpacks to Spain and Peru and South America. I learned to speak Spanish there, taking four hours of class per day. We went, uh, hiked to Machu Picchu. We went down to Patagonia and Southern uh, South America. And so that trip really just changed it for me. It kind of changed my mindset about this idea of taking many retirements and not putting off these things that you love to do, whether it's travel or uh, starting a garden or starting a nonprofit. Like, don't put that off until later in life. Like, let's do that throughout your life and let's build, let's build that into the business plan right now. And for us, that, that's meant every two to five years taking these longer trips. And we, we, now that we've had kids, we, in 2017, we went for 17 months to Ecuador in South America and lived there. And our kids went to school. They were three and five years old. And so they learned to speak Spanish and made a lot of great friends there. And we've done, we did that again last year, went to Spain uh, and they're, they're now, they were now 10 and 12 when we went there this time. Uh, we'll have to see if my, my older daughter lets us do that again. She's got some <laughs> her, her good friends back in the United States and her, her activities. But I guess the point is by investing in real estate, by having flexibility, by having that asset that produces the income, like you were talking about, it, it frees up your time to do whatever you want to do. And you, like a little kid, you can say, what do I want to do when I grow up? How, how do I? I want to spend my time. And for us, that's been uh, enjoying travel, languages, culture, food, places that we'd never be able to visit otherwise. I'm telling you, that's the first step. If you do not know what you want, you won't get it. <laughs> and and, and I, I ask people all the time, what do you want? And they're like, hmm, hmm. So this, this is the first question. Sit down and decide how you want your life and let the real estate uh, support that instead of letting um, real estate run your life, which it which it yeah, it doesn't have to be rational. That's the other thing. Like, you know, we're very a lot of real estate investors are a type. Only the facts, man, the logic. But your your why is very it can be illogical. Like, that's in fact it is. Like, we're we're human beings make emotional decisions, and that's perfectly okay. And you have permission to do that. We're we're giving you permission. Love it, oh, Chad. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the Real Wealth Show. Um, and then, where can people find your book? Uh, the book is at Bigger Pockets. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. So if you just search for the small and mighty real estate investor, it, it's out there. And I hope hope it's helpful for people and would love to hear from them after they read it or listen to it. And hope it hope it helps you make your own small and mighty journey even more successful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here on The Real Wealth Show. Thanks, Kathy. Great to be here. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you would like some hand-holding as you build your real estate portfolio, just go over to realwealthshow.com. We have investment counselors there who will give you a free session to help you figure out your strategy and how we can help you at Real Wealth. And Chad also mentioned creative financing. We have got some great creative financing deals at Real Wealth. Uh, we've been able to negotiate with builders to, who are paying down the rate to as low as 4.75% or 5.75%, depending on the property. So you can go check that out again at realwealthshow.com. I'm Kathy Bedke. Thanks again for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.